This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Tim Entwistle. Tim is the head of the Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria, and he joined me to speak about his life with plants as detailed in his new book, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk. Tim started his research and life with plants as an expert on algae. He also reflects on the role and purpose of botanic gardens in our society. I'm speaking with Professor Tim Entwistle. He is CEO and Director of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria, and he's also a trained phycologist, having studied a PhD in it in his uni days, of course. It was really lovely to read this book, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk, out through Thames and Hudson by yourself, Tim, not just because of how you've talk about your roles of managing these wonderful Royal Botanic Gardens in Australia and also some great gardens, especially those, the Kew Gardens in the United Kingdom, but also your general life, the way that plants and algae especially have influenced you and also your thinking about plants and the role of botanic gardens. So that's one brilliant element, but also what did surprise me and what we had mentioned off there was that you had a connection to Triple R and that you yourself do subscribe to the station, but that's because you had this wonderful connection way back in in university listening to Triple R where it seemed to have a very formative effect and influence on your musical tastes. Yeah, it's um, people like Stephen Walker was such a hero of mine. And um, I was saying before when we were chatting that I'd listen to that show and, and he seemed to be playing exactly the music I wanted. So, I, you know, he'd, he'd play a song and you'd think, oh, what, what would come after that? And he'd put on just the perfect next song. And, and even taking you, you know, into bands that perhaps I didn't think I liked so much, but picking just the right kind of... Um, tune that would get me interested in them as well so he he was a a big hero and and triple r was the place where i went to to get all all my music to listen to my bands and it was pretty much the the only thing i listened to for years and years and years so it's been great i've I've, you know been diverted with a lot of other things more recently with podcasts and things and i do miss having that uh sort of soundtrack to my life through triple r so i do try and pop in every now and then whenever i can I'm so glad you do. It's really lovely. I know I've, I've heard you speak on the Breakfasters before and it's always really wonderful to check in with you and hear what is happening, especially at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria. This book is a lot more than the Royal Botanic Gardens, but it's certainly that does play a role in your life, a very substantial role. So we will get to that. But Tim, I wanted to bring us to algae. Algae That's something that, you know, we hear about, and I think I've often heard about algae in a negative sense. You know, we hear about algal blooms and the negative role of algae when things aren't working right with the climate and, you know, the water becomes really stagnant. But I know that must be just such a really simplistic and one-sided view of algae. And, you know, you introduce us to algae in this book in a, a really lovely way. So I wondered, could you talk to us about how you got interested in not only you know plants, but certainly algae especially, and how that has shaped your life. And clearly it's brought you on a very interesting and wonderful journey. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd one in a way because I, I started off actually more as a kind of maths physics guy at univer- when I went to university. And 
went to these lectures about, well, I went to plant lectures. I had to fill in a few extra points and I, and I did some botany. And that was fascinating. And I thought that was really interesting. But then we had some algal lectures and particularly a guy called Jerry Craft, who was, to us, um, was, I, I say in the book, he was like Hunter S. Thompson. He, he finds that, he says he's not really like Hunter S. Thompson, but he, he looked like him and he was uh, so cool. And he, he did, you know, he used to collect seaweeds on the coast. And not only that, but when he talked about algae, and our seaweeds are a kind of algae, so they're the ones perhaps people like more often when you see those reds and browns and greens on the sea. There are plankton in the in the oceans that soak up um, carbon and take up about half the carbon dioxide we produce. So very important for our our future life on this planet. But the, he he made them sound so interesting. And not only that, he and the others lecturing to us pointed out that we knew hardly anything about them. So for someone who was a scientist, I was already knew I was that kind of person, I suppose. I was, I'd go down to my local creek and I collected stuff off rocks and it turned out it was something entirely new that had never been found before in the creeks around Melbourne. And that sense of finding something for the first time, looking at it under a microscope, because that's what you do. And this may surprise people, but they're quite beautiful and spectacular when you see them uh, enlarged. So they might be green and slimy in the water, but when you take them out and you have a look, there are all these beautiful patterns and shapes and uh, and they're a part of, part of the, I guess, the Australian flora, if you like, it's the same way that we have um, really distinctive flowering plants and about 80% of our plants only grow in Australia and nowhere else. And, you know, we have distinctive animal life and mammals and all that kind of thing, marsupials. We also have this distinctive algal flora and it's just the same, it's just that we don't often see it. So yes, there are weedy, blue-green algal blooms, terrible things that get on your paths, but you know that's, that's the same way that there are blackberries and there are weedy nettles and all that kind of thing. In, in the algal world, there are these wonderful Australian species that I went out and discovered. And the thing that probably hooked me was, I used to like bushwalking a bit, although in the book I point out that I'm, I don't do too many big long walks after one very unsuccessful one, but I, I used to love going for walks in the mountains and I, I discovered there were these algae growing in mountain streams. So that meant I could then travel, you know, I could go to Wilson's Promontory or the Grampians in Victoria. I could go up to um, the Blue Mountains. I could go to Northern Territory, down to the southwest of Tassie, which I loved. And I could go to these wonderful spots, um, collect these things off the rocks. They're like little mini seaweeds growing on rocks. People probably don't even notice them. Bring them back, look at their beauty under the microscope and then describe all these new things. So, you know, anyway, the whole package just excited me as a young scientist. Yeah. Well, I love that you have put some images in the book of some of your favourite alga. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of them I'm going to really mispronounce, so I apologise to all those phycologists. It is Batrachospermum. Batrachospermum. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there we go. A relative of red seaweeds, which you say is found in fast-flowing, pristine mountain streams. And I'll let you describe it, but it is just, it kind of looks like an artwork. 
Yeah, it is. It's it's very beautiful, and and it's the closest thing I could describe. It's probably like a bottle brush or like a bottle brush flower. You know, people might know the calistemons, which have those lovely um, sort of red or yellowy, bright coloured flowers. This alga has this sort of has a main thread down the middle, and then these what we call them we call them whorls of branches or branchlets, and it and they spiral around that main axis, and then there are these little dark shapes in there which are the reproductive parts and that's where I go looking for the the characters to identify it and then when you you know so they look beautiful on the microscope they're they're called batraca sperm because they're like frogs eggs so batrac is the uh, latin word for a frog and sperma means eggs so they're a little bit slippery and slimy and in fact there's a link back to the you know my music tastes and my interest in the birthday party where I described a new genus called Nocturama um, which some people will recognise as a, a, an album put out by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. <laughs> and I, it was because this particular red alga or Batrachosperma related thing grew in quite dark, gloomy areas. It was, a, you know, it was a, a, a grown much darker places than most other algae. You, you know, would expect them to not grow there, but it grew on these rocks in mountain streams, but in really heavily shaded areas. So I named it Nocturama after that uh, album or a connection to that. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. I loved also your mentioning in, in your book when you're talking about your time training at the University of Melbourne under Jerry Craft and the whole experience of studying in the Botany Building and hanging out at University House, which all of these places are very familiar to me. But you say, I left the University of Melbourne with a first-class honours degree and an enduring interest in freshwater algae. By default, I had become one of the country's leading experts in my chosen field, an attractive proposition for a 21-year-old. It brings it home to me, doesn't it, and to you, I'm sure, that algae perhaps is quite neglected or had been neglected, although, as you say, it was a golden age of algal taxonomy in Australia at the time. So, you know, the identifying and naming of, of algae and discovering new ones, and you had been discovering your own, as you've just referenced. But I wonder, is it still the case that there are very few algal experts in Australia, especially engaging in that taxonomic work? Yeah, there there is, and we there are very few. And you mentioned, you know, you're more familiar perhaps with mycology and mycologists, the fungal people. Yeah. And there's a huge, you know, unknown area of uh, fungal taxonomy in in Australia, or you know, the classification, which we don't know about. With algae, we know a little bit more, so it's a little bit better known. But there are very few people trained up, and 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 as you know, as as I wrote there. You do feel like you're you're um, the only person uh, in town who studies phycology. I'm trying to think. There's other analogies there, but <laughs> the it, it's exciting, but also a little bit daunting. And and what's interesting, you know, as I've got more into botanic gardens and more into what we call flowering plants, or you know, the the, the flora outside of algae, I have moved away from doing algal research, and I, I miss it quite a bit. I used to love doing it, and I feel a little bit remiss that I'm not training up enough new phycologists because we do need to keep that alive. I'm giving a couple of lectures at the University of Melbourne later this year where I'll be trying to excite people in first year about doing algae. And, you know, the same way that Jerry Craft as my as kind of a, a Hunter S. Thompson uh, look-alike excited me when I got into university, I'm hoping there'll be the, just a, a glimmer of interest from people because it... I think if you're interested in the world, the natural world, and you 
Look, you can, you can, there's two different ways you can approach it. One, if you, if you want to do good things, you want to kind of do some really worthy work and help understand our systems, find out what's out there, conserve it, look after it, um, make sure we've got healthy rivers and healthy systems and you know, algae are part of that. Or you might go into a little bit like I did, and I'm quite open about the fact that it, what excited me was the, the fun and enjoyment of finding these things, describing them, and linking it back, this the interesting thing is you link it back to a, a knowledge base that goes, you know, back back through many centuries, back through collectors who've worked over many years, and you do you do start to put your own life in in sort of embedded within this this history of science, and I find that a kind of I don't know whether it's satisfying or it's a it's a very um, fulfilling thing to do because you're adding a little bit of knowledge to something that grows and you become part of that. Yeah, it's a collective effort. It often feels like that in the discipline of history as well is, you know, you're part of a group who's trying to further a field. And although there'll be those debates and disagreements sometimes, it does feel like you're contributing to something bigger than yourself. Yeah, that's right. And you and if you do it well, you do, you add a bit, and then somebody else comes along and adds more, and they and and you know and and people correct what you've done. That's the other the other thing too. You know, you find they find that you've um, overlooked something or found something. So, yeah, that you become part of a bigger a bigger narrative and a bigger story. And I think that's that's the great thing about science generally. But it's also, as you say, things like history. And I do, I, I've always you know I talk a little bit about the kind of books I read in in the book too. But I. I I, I love history as a, a genre or, top, or sort of an interest as well. And I think with with my algal work, I was always very interested too in the first people that had described these things. And, you know, there was a Swedish botanist who'd, come, who'd been sent material from Australia and I ended up getting to Uppsala in Sweden to see his collections. And to me, that was as interesting, if you like, the people, the history, where we got to as to actually describing the new thing. Mm, I loved that description. It reminds me of, you know, going into an archive in a tiny town and it feels like no one's looked at it for years and years. It just has this magical quality to it, you know, something really exciting like treasure. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's right. And and sometimes, you, I mean, it's it's more exciting to you as an individual than when you tell people about it and they if they don't know the why algae are so interesting and and they go oh yeah well that's you know you, <laughs> you, you looked at these little bottles of uh, pickled plant material in a cupboard that have been locked and you know that's that's sort of interesting tim but yeah, what else did you, you do while you're over there yeah <laughs> yeah well you do talk about your travels as well throughout this book and we'll get to some of the latter parts of your life and your travels but i did want to touch on the opening part of your book because it does set up a lot of the themes that you continue to return to in in the book because you're really talking about botanic gardens and the history of botanic gardens, the different types of botanic gardens that did exist and some that have thankfully continued to exist in the same location that they were originally. Some have since moved. Some have been looked after very carefully. Some are very much not looked after. Some are accessible. Some are closed when you turn up to see them, which is kind of mind-blowing to me that the garden could be closed at many different days of the week. It's obviously really sad to to hear that it wouldn't be accessible to the public, but it brought up all these questions for me. And I thought I'd start with the garden that you first talk about, which is the Orto Botanico di Padova in Padua in Italy. 
uh, where you describe it so beautifully, saying that there are these beautiful, charming circular garden with a segmented uh, medicinal beds dating back to 1545. And it sounds almost idyllic when you describe it, saying that there were children studying with their teachers, scribbling down botanical and common names from plant labels, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of felt like this paradise of scientific discovery. When you read about it, I haven't unfortunately got to, to see it myself, but I wonder, could you explain why you open with the history of botanical gardens and what you've observed about the nature and quality of botanical gardens, given you've seen so many in your travels. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really interesting garden to start with because it is considered to be the oldest, I guess, modern botanic garden still in the same place, which sounds like a, a lot of qualifiers. But um, you know, you can almost date, you can date botanic gardens if you really want to, right back to kind of Greek gardens and but and Roman, but not really. They they really came into their own as sort of medicinal or physic gardens to, to provide a way to display the plants that people were using for healing or for food and that kind of thing. And then they sort of moved on to demonstrating the, I guess, God's creation, you know, the, the plants that have been put on earth and then eventually moved in through the Enlightenment as more about science. And then we've gone in a few more steps forward um, these days where we look at conservation and trying to look after plants. But back in that garden in Padua, um, I start the book too with a kind of negative because I I was genuinely reading a book at the time, um, Robert Deze, who, who wrote a book about going to Venice. And he his character, uh, you know, sits out having a coffee opposite the Padua Gardens and looks in and says, oh, look, I've, I've seen botanic gardens before. This might be beautiful, but they're all the same. You, you can't eat the plants in them. Um, you can't pick the flowers. It's just a sort of a, a pretty poor recreation of Eden. Um, I'm going to go back to Venice and not even go into the Botanic Garden. And I was re reading this at the time I was about to visit, you know, what I what I had been told was a very important Botanic Garden because it was the, you know, the first one, if you like. And, I, of course, I went in. I, I'm obviously going to go into the Botanic Garden. And I loved it. And it, it it's quite small. Um, it has those very orderly beds. It's very old-fashioned in a way, and, and you can sort of see its history really clearly in the old walls around the garden, and in the way the plants are still displayed. Yet it's it did have um, new displays, and it had, as I said in in the book, you know, there were children engaging, connecting with it, and it was still doing its job. It was still doing what I think, you know, and I talk more about this in the book, what botanic gardens can do. And it was a fascinating garden. And it made me think really about what a botanic garden is. And I'd been you know, already working in a couple by then. I got to visit many, many more gardens. But to try and think about what made uh, a botanic garden a botanic garden and then what made it a, a really good one. And that, that one in Padua, you know, I think was doing the basics really well. Uh, it certainly was covering that science part of it you know it, was, it was, had enough information to excite people about plants and I you know I do talk about this in the book too where you know you go to some cities and if you want to get excited by plants you don't go to the botanic gardens and there's a, there's a couple in I mentioned explicitly so it's a bit sad for those but um, in Florence and Granada where the botanic gardens are an are nice enough and they've got labelled plants, but they're not really beautiful places yet. Yet people going, anyone who's been to the city of Granada in the south of Spain would know that there's this beautiful Alhambra. So that, you know, 
fantastic architecture and gardens just above the town. So I argue that that's where people go to get excited by plants rather than the botanic garden. So if we're going to hold our own as botanic gardens, and this is true for me in Melbourne where I am now, Melbourne and Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, or if I've worked in Sydney and, and Kew in London, we have to we have to compete, if you like, or we have to make sure that we're offering something that's as attractive and as exciting as the best kind of plant display in town and be quite comfortable with having cultural events and activities and life in the gardens and not just uh, you know lean back if you like on the on the hard science so that's that's a kind of a bit of a theme that grows through the book and I, I found as I was writing it that became stronger and stronger too in my own mind yeah it is that interesting consideration about what you say especially that each uh, botanic garden has very different objectives and you say that they're mostly allied to intrinsic beauty science or conservation and I know that having studied art history, we used to have subjects where it was quite literally the art of the garden and we would study gardens as artworks. So deep into history, and I'm sure these weren't botanic gardens, but gardens had been seen as a very aesthetic thing. It was it was a show of power, especially in France at Versailles, for example. So there are these really interesting roles that all kinds of gardens play, but botanic gardens in particular, as you reflect, do have a very special role. There is that taxonomic quality. So being able to see different types of plants, whether they be native or introduced. Could you talk about some of the considerations that go into a botanic garden, especially those long held or long running debates that might occur during the tenure of a, a botanic gardens director, whether it be about the the kind of role of native plants in a botanic garden and the role of seed banks, all these kind of things. What are some of those debates that seem to be important to the community that have come up in each of your roles? Yeah, look, there's lots of interesting tensions and opportunities in botanic gardens. And I, I suppose to start, I think that botanic gardens work really well when they combine science, nature and culture together. And they're not, in a way, they're not saying, you know, one of those is more important than the other, because I think they, they're they really powerful places when they combine those together. They can do things that a museum can't do, and they can, it's a it's a real living environment that you can be immersed in. They, they're they different every single day. I think that's that's what I find fascinating too, that you, a walk through a garden is going to be different every day. There'll be a different thing in flower, something's in fruit. So it's a changing environment. But there's that, that tension that's there from all kinds of directions really, but there is that, the science behind it is very important. And the fact that you see labelled plants might seem like a, a trivial thing in a way. And I remember somebody used to describe them as like graveyards. Someone in Sydney thought the botanic garden looked like a graveyard and you just had these little um, plaques on each plant that was somehow dragged out of its natural habitat and it was a bit depressing and sad. Um, that's one perspective, I would say. <laughs> the, the I. The, those labels and those names should sort of really trigger something in our mind about the variety and diversity of, of plant life. They should remind us that plants grow all over the world and, and particularly a garden like the one in, in Melbourne, which has is a world garden and has plants from every part of the globe. It's really telling you, you know, this plant here is from uh, southern China. This is a, it's something that's it's growing on the mountaintops there. It had a story of it being 
um, used or collected or maybe a, a, a use as a food or whatever it was, and then it's now in our botanic garden and you can find out more about that plant. So there's that, that sort of detail about each individual in the collection, and it is a collection. That's an important point to make. These are collections of living plants, and we have also a collection of preserved plants called a herbarium. But that collection is then in a beautiful landscape, and what if a botanic garden does it well, they have this stunning landscape that embeds those collections into something quite beautiful. So you create this landscape that draws you in, and then you start to see the details. So you might just come for the beauty you might just come to picnic you might just come to you know hang out it doesn't really matter but then you can start to take in those extra layers and they're there in a really good botanic garden and even then once you get to know the plants there are some that have strong conservation or scientific value so they're quite rare or they're unusual or they're telling a, a particular story and we it, they are definitely places of stories so the, the more we can bring those out the better the other perhaps big tension too is often you know whether we have events in the in here, whether we do big commercial things. We've had lightscape in the Melbourne Gardens recently, which was a you know really popular and sold out event over six weeks, and it meant we could do something in the evenings when the gardens were closed, and it didn't detract from the for the rest of the garden. It had a few extra lights and things around, but it it, it we were able to do that as well as do the science and the nature. So. It's really that that modern botanic garden has to do all those things. Uh, and, and the one I add, sort of by the time I got to the end of the book, I was thinking, you know, sort of post-COVID perhaps, this sense of a garden as a place of healing, this sense of a, a place for solace, for being with people outdoors has become even more and more important. So I think our role may even change again a little bit. Yeah. And I know you've had multiple roles where you've, played a key part in managing herbariums because you mentioned that about your roles at the Sydney Botanic Gardens but also those here in Melbourne with the National Herbarium of Victoria they are very magical places and I know we've kind of referenced things that might happen at a herbarium like looking at plant species or specimens under a microscope preserving some of these specimens for the future so that others can compare species and and identify them and I wonder if you're reflecting on some of the different parts of your roles given that you are a scientist as well as in these kind of administrative or managerial roles what have been some of the more magical moments for you maybe they excited your scientific part of your brain more than your managerial part or or vice versa yeah, yeah, no, that's they they do sort of blend in together a little. And I think as a as a director of a gardens, you're talking about what's going on across the whole place, and that can be from you know through learning programs and science and 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 events and activities, and you have to you know other people often do do the work, and you're you're out there talking about it. And so I I do get um, what is it I you know I, I benefit and I enjoy the work work of others but as a the things that have really excited me most things like um the flowering of the what we call the titan arum the, the, which is sort of arguably the biggest flower in the world it's a it's really a collective of tiny little flowers so we can even have a you know we, internally we have a, a debate about whether it's one flower or many but this titan arum you know it, it's a it looks like a great big uh, banana or chamois with with a, a purple skirt on the outside of it, it's about you know two meters tall and it smells like a dead possum 
that is an amazing thing to to have flowering in a botanic garden, and I've I've had them in Sydney, at Kew, and and in London and here in Melbourne, and it draws in thousands and thousands of people to see a flower, and I I, I love that because it's. You know, it's from the Sumatran rainforest. It's quite rare. It's pollinated by flies that love the the stink of this kind of rotten flesh. So it's got these lovely backstories to it, and it looks impressive. So those big things are exciting. The the Wallamai pine I've been a bit involved in when I was at Sydney. So that's a rare pine, or it's a, it's a pine relative that grows. You know, just north of Sydney, there's only a hundred trees left in the wild, and it's now propagated and grown around the world but that's that's quite an exciting find too because it's a tree that's been with us for a very long time we knew it from the the kind of fossil record so we knew that there was this tree out there um, but we thought it had gone extinct so it's really at the time it was described like finding a dinosaur alive today and it really is it's it's um finding something that we thought was long gone and was around at the time of the dinosaurs. So it sometimes gets called a Jurassic tree or dinosaur tree. Those kind of rock starry plants I love, but you know, I, equally I'm at home with the, uh, you know, as we already talked about with the algae and finding something exciting in that as well. In running the gardens itself, I like the opportunities to talk about what we're doing. So Lightscape is great because we, you know, it's, it was a big, a big light event, but I could also talk about the, the local artists that were coming into the gardens. I could talk about the connection with our, our herbarium you mentioned. So one, some of the light displays were inspired by the preserved plants we have in our herbarium. So there's one and a half million of these pressed plant specimens which is exactly what they sound like. You know, you can do it between a, a couple of bits of newspaper and put a book on it and you, you create one of these specimens. We have those for all the plants in Victoria and Australia and around the world. And to tell the stories of those and where they came from is, is really interesting. So I love being the opportunity to do that. And because I like talking about science and plants um, and writing about it, the things that are really really I do enjoy is when I can find an interesting story and an interesting plant and link the two together and, and then get someone else interested in it. So, you know, it's it's that it's it's probably that communication side that I love the most. Yeah, that certainly is present throughout the book is your passion for writing, for speaking through the media and other modes to get this broader public science communication component out into the world. And you're still doing that right now. You're writing for magazines, appearing on the radio. This is clearly something that's really great because you get to do that as part of your role. But you were doing that even before you were leading a Royal Botanic Garden here in Victoria. But I wanted to just reflect on something in our final question, which was around having gone to, you know, the Kew Gardens in London, having managed the gardens up in Sydney, coming back to Melbourne to lead the Royal Botanic Gardens here in Victoria. You reflect on that in 2013 when you return from London. And you say that on my return to Melbourne in 2013, I noticed how close the city's botanic garden was to paradise. It really is one of the most exquisite botanical garden creations on earth, a botanic garden unto itself. And then you basically say the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew comes the closest to being indispensable to the city in which they dwell, saying that Melbourne really does have this beautiful connection, close connection to the gardens, not only 
proximity, but obviously all the other connections we've got. And I just wondered if you could reflect on the differences that you've seen around the world, you know, coming back to Melbourne, having that more international perspective once you're back, how much you appreciated Melbourne's Botanic Gardens and obviously Cranbourne as well, and how they were different to overseas experiences, how much you treasured being here especially. Yeah, and it's hard with those kind of um, reflections, it's hard to separate the nostalgia from, you know, the the sheer beauty. And I was trying to sort of tease that out a bit too, where for me, I discovered Botanic Gardens here in Melbourne and and really became a bit of a a groupie. And once I I had a holiday job in here when I was at university and then I got a, a little bit of work out in the horticultural area and then came back later to, to work on flowering plants and then move into management. And so the botanic garden here has a very special place for me because it's where I discovered what a botanic garden could do and what it is. And then moving, you know, I went up to Sydney Botanic Gardens as director there. I started as head of science and then to Kew Gardens, which are, are lovely, beautiful gardens too. And they're, you know, I think all, all botanic gardens are, are, are wonderful places. There are very few that don't, you know, don't do something and awaken something in you if you visit. But when I came back to Melbourne, I'd sort of forgotten, I suppose, just the, the beauty of this design and the creation that it is. It's, and it comes right back to that comment we were talking about Padua and, and in Italy, what a botanic garden is trying to do. And it's not trying to recreate Eden. It's not right trying to recreate nature. It's not even trying to be a park. It's it's a it's a botanical landscape, and a it's how do you arrange these collections of plants in the most beautiful way? And I do really think the Melbourne Gardens has achieved that in a classical sense, and then Cranbourne, the Australian Garden, has done it in a really modern, more sort of edgy way, if you like. So we've got kind of both examples here that give you that those lovely counterpoints if you like one with Australian plants in a more modern design and this lovely world garden and Kew is beautiful but it's it's in London but it's flat it's a mile long beautiful trees but you know the, the landscape doesn't look as spectacular as it, this one in Melbourne Sydney I love because it's it's on the harbour and it's a beautiful spot and has wonderful collections but again doesn't hold together as much as a single whole so we're so lucky in Melbourne to have this garden that I do think is part of our city. It's part of our cultural life. There's the, I like to think there's the, you know, the gallery, the MCG, the the gardens, um, there's the library. These are a cultural institutions. They're part of a, the modern cultural institution. And then we haven't talked about the connection back to the traditional owners and the, the First Nations people here, but there's also that in each garden, which we, we're, we're bringing out more to the fore now. But there's so much in a garden like this one that's 176 years old, the one I'm standing in today as we speak. And that one, you know, we, we, we should be so proud of our one in Melbourne because I, I just found it, um, as I said, a mix of nostalgia because coming back to the place I love, um, but also realising just how beautiful and spectacular it is. Yeah, it is really lovely and it makes me want to go back. So (laughs) it's been a very successful book for me to start yearning to re-experience the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne because it's been quite a while since I've had a chance to really explore it properly. So I appreciate you talking about this book, which is just so wonderful because it is really your life, but it's also Botanic Gardens completely enmeshed into that 
and, you know, algae and all these wonderful parts of your life that have been such a big passion of yours. So I hope people can delve more deeply into all of the topics that you cover because we've just scratched the surface of what you discuss and explore in this book, which is so thoughtful. It's full of wonderful stories. So I implore people to check it out. And I also want to just say a big thank you to you, Tim, for your time today and for sharing so generously and kindly some of your thoughts on botanic gardens and what they've meant to you in your life. Oh, look, thank you, Amy. It's a lovely conversation and I'm delighted to be on air again on, on 3 R. So, yeah, it's always always great and uh, it's been a lovely chat. So thanks, Amy. Oh, my pleasure. I've just been speaking with Professor Tim Entwistle, who is CEO and Director of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria, and we've been discussing his book, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk, which is out right now via Thames and Hudson. It's just been released. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.